Welcome to Healing the City podcast. Today, I have a special guest, my sister-in-law, Lane Crawford. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And we're going to go back a long time to um, talk about Lane's experience as a teacher in South Tucson and how that connects to the village. So I think we should start with your... So you went to the University of Arizona. I did. Um, I moved here from Indiana and started at the U of A in 2004. And I graduated in 2009 with my degree in geology. And and then I shifted out of research during that time and into education. So I landed in the education world. Okay. And so did you have an undergrad in, in education or were you doing the classes on the side? Um, the way they did it at the time was math and science. You got your degree in a math and science. Okay. Um, and then, oh, because you were teaching older kids. Yeah, because uh-huh. I was doing secondary. So history and English, those and PE were kind of funneled through, I don't know about PE actually, but history and English were through the College of Ed. Um, and then math and science were through the College of Science. So oh, interesting. science education was your minor. Um, and you did all the like child development, classroom management pieces on top of it. But you were still, they wanted you to be highly qualified and be like an actually like a science trained person. So you got your degree in a science or math. Okay. Wow. And during your undergrad years, you were also coming to the village. Yeah, I started coming here off and on my freshman year in 2004. Yep. Okay. And that's kind of like <laughs> when our paths um, intertwined because yeah. we, I, Dave and I started coming in 2005. Yeah. So. You guys were like the young married couple and I was like with the college student people. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we knew each other, but it's not like, but you guys were hanging out with other young married people coming alongside you in your marriage yeah 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 I I was going to class (laughs) yeah right yeah it's funny because a lot of your peers are the people who I'm friends with now but sure you guys were all friends because you were in college yeah it's so funny even though you're only you know I was closer in age to to you yeah but it felt wasn't the life life yeah Yeah. to to some of the other couples at the village too no totally which is why and that changes as you get older where that becomes like the differences yeah as you get older it doesn't matter but yeah yeah but at the time it feels like yeah right like, oh yeah four oh, years is a big deal in college yeah <laughs> no totally so you graduated and then what did you do um did you go straight to south can you just take me on the journey of how that all unfolded sure um yeah at the time i your student teacher last semester so i student taught at um out in vale at Cienega high school okay um which was a very different dynamic than where I ended up. So straight out of once I graduated, um, I had a particular scholarship where I was almost like contracted to be in a Title I district. Um, I got a scholarship based on that. And then I also got like some of my student loans forgiven being there. Oh, wow. Um, so I I mean, a lot of Tucson is Title I districts um, because it's a city embedded with a lot of poverty. So... I think Vail might be the only one that maybe doesn't qualify, but I forget right now if it depends on the school or the district. There's sometimes a distinction. Um, I think it's the school. I think some schools okay. are Title I schools and some schools aren't, but I could be wrong. Yeah, and sometimes the way the f- the funding ends up coming through, like I think for my scholarship, 
I just remember I was looking at districts as a whole, but sometimes that was to do with my research and I can't remember. Sure. Um, what was all happening? Yeah. So uh, I graduated in May of 2009 and then started at my high school uh, right there, right, oh, right that, that fall. That fall. Yeah. Okay. So I was fortunate to get a job like right away. And mm-hmm. um, that's the school I taught at had an old astronomy and like oceanography program. They used to teach geology from a teacher who had been there ages, and she was amazing. I never mm-hmm. had actually met her, but I inherited a lot of her curriculum and her supplies. And wow. So it was just kind of, I mean, earth science, I taught her science, and that's what I teach. That's what I'm certified to teach. So it's small enough. You usually only have one teacher per high school, um, and they, you know, stay a while. So hopefully. Um, so I, it was lucky timing, but... So yeah. you got this job in, in South Tucson, and, and at what point did you realize that moving there would be impactful, that that, that would be something that you wanted to do? Um, I mean, I think at the time I was just looking to get a job anywhere, mm-hmm. like in town, um, and I think... I was not aware of how serendipitous it was that I got that job and that they had that kind of opening. Um, looking back, I'm like, wow, I'm so lucky. <laughs> like, <laughs> but at the time, you're like, I just graduated. I'm yeah. awesome. Like, I, yeah. Of course they should hire me, right? Of course. <laughs> just so... I mean, I was 23. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, teaching mostly juniors and seniors at the time. I had some sophomores, um, no freshmen. So usually... Like maybe a fourth of all my students were sophomores and the rest were juniors and seniors. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it wasn't really an intentional choice. I think I longed to be somewhere. And some of it I see now as like my own entitlement of wanting to like, like save people. You know, mm-hmm. some of it was I was coming from um, a couple teaching programs and working with some people where we were going to be getting to talk about, um, yeah, like race and education and how those two things intertwine in poverty. And my scholarship program is called like um, the Noyce, Robert Noyce Scholars Program. It's funded through the National Science Foundation. So it's trying to build science literacy and, and build up teachers to go into places that are usually underserved. So some mm-hmm. of it was shaped through that program Mm -hmm. um and it was an amazing program but but yeah so it just opened up and then it was a beautiful place but yeah I was not fully equipped (laughs) in some other different ways but yeah it was kind of an accident (laughs) and eventually you bought a house down there what like what is how much time passed between getting that job and then moving into the community? Yeah, I started in the fall of 2009, so in July of 2009, teaching. And then my house finally closed in April of 2011. So some of it was I started teaching right after the financial crash. That's when I graduated. And so, um, like... K-12 schools were already really hurting and then the crash happened and the state cut the budget. So mm. um, they, yeah, my first year they fired every teacher on staff at the end of that year because they had to. And then they brought only the people back who they could afford, 
who like so schools do it as a desperation attempt when um how can that be legal to fire everybody do you know well your contract is a year so they can't really fire you usually mid-year but partly at the end of the year they can terminate your contract okay so they okay that makes sense so they so it was at the end of the year yeah um and it was like happening all across town all across the state yeah um what a scary time for teachers yeah so i went like if i had quit and like gotten rehired like my salary would have gone up so we all got fired and then we had renegotiated salaries at a lower rate so partially i started looking at buying a house because i couldn't afford my rent Mm. like at the time they you know i was a science teacher but they weren't paying for a lot of lab supplies they didn't pay for any classroom supplies um, every now and then you could get like, you know, like they would pay for paper, um, to make copies, but like a lot of things, if I wanted like Kleenex or, you know, like any lab that I was really going to do where you needed to not use like Bunsen burners or beakers, like stuff that we had on hand, but like I need salt water and bags of flour and whatever things we're using for a lab. Like I had to buy all that myself. So, mm. um, yeah, it just, even then my parents were still helping me, mm-hmm. like, pay bills and afford, like, lab supplies for my classes. Like, my parents funded wow. good first three years of those kids' education. <laughs> like, and I, and you know, like, I see the privilege in that, like, and helped me buy my house. So, mm-hmm. there were a lot of ways that they still contributed to my survival. And even then, it was still really hard. Yeah. And if if I hadn't had them, that wouldn't have been possible. I would have had to quit mm-hmm. earlier. Hmm. And so other than like the financial um, need to, you know, own a home, um, like what were your hopes and visions for, for moving into, you know, the area where you were also teaching? Because, and for people yeah. who don't know Tucson or don't know this, like the distance between where we are right now and where you were teaching, it's a, you know, it's a whole other part of the city. So you were yeah. in essence, like moving away from a church community that prides itself on being pretty central and, and, you know, a lot of and the, connected and connected yeah. here. Yeah. Like you moved away from that. Yes. But purposely. Yes. Well, and I think my first two years I was really struck, especially the first year, like a lot of the teachers were imported essentially. Like, I mean, it's, the, it's true in our culture, you know, like a lot of the teachers were white and they lived on the north side of town and they drove 45 minutes into school to teach here. Mm-hmm. So um, some of the administrators, which was really cool, had grown up in the community and were from there. But a lot of the teachers, there was high teacher turnover at, at my school. So um, I was just really struck by that and the way that the students really interpreted that, that there was this sense of like, they don't know us. They don't know what it's like to be here. Like... Mm-hmm. It made it this very us and them community kind of thing about the school. And I was like, I don't want that. Like, I want to be in it with my students and I want to not be a spectator to their community. Mm -hmm. And so that was the other driving factor why I wanted to live where I did. And, And moving away from here, I mean, at the time I was finishing college and I probably lived like from the church, maybe 10 minutes from here, eight minutes and then, yeah, so then I lived down by the airport, um, like five minutes away from San Javier Mission. So, um, yeah, that was more the driving factor was to be a part of the community and to be able to have a voice and to say, like, I stand with your experience and 
I'm a part, like I live here too. That was really mm-hmm. powerful for them. And it made a huge difference. I was continually shocked. That students connected with you because they knew that you lived yeah. near them. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so what kinds of things did you do to be present in their community? Like, did you go to like any, like to the same taco shops or to like grocery stores or was it more just that you owned a home there? I mean, I think all of the above because I wasn't going to drive a half hour to go to the store or something ridiculous, you know, and it was more, I mean, it takes a while because again, I didn't grow up there. Like I am in a way, like I'm never going to be from there Mm -hmm. and I'm not Hispanic and I don't speak great Spanish. So like, it was also like, what's the line between like wanting to stand with them, like, you know, as a, as an ally and an advocate, but not like try to re-narrate my own story like I am one of them because I'm not. So Mm -hmm. like the balance of giving dignity to their experience and to like being there. Um, But yeah, not trying to like rewrite that I grew up in a really white privileged place, like Mm -hmm. white town, and I grew up very privileged. So, and my parents didn't worry about money. So... That is just a very different experience for them. Um, so to not like try to pretend that wasn't true, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, yeah, I think it was also like getting to the point of seeing what was at play in the community, you know, like where did students go? And, oh, your uncle owns that like carniceria. Oh, we'll start going there. Like, mm-hmm. oh, so you were intentional about supporting students and their families' businesses yeah. if you knew about them? or Yeah. Yeah. So I think some of it was being willing to put that into play every day or like, you know, they always had students or I always had students like had things going, you know, like band and football games and like there was a ton of things to go to. And, and so some of it I struggled with like balancing like the grading and the like attending all their things and the lesson planning and then the how do I be present at church and in my community like I I felt really torn it was Mm -hmm. hard to try to be fully present there and in the community and then be fully present here like it's a hard balance because in a way like it's the same city but I think that's where Eric like wanted to call it and ordain me as a missionary Mm -hmm. Um, because in a way I was being sent to another culture that wasn't mine it wasn't it's not really the culture of the village some of the people who come here yes it's their culture but um it's not it's not the same so I had a lot of cultural learning to do um and I'm still like looking back being like oh that's (laughs) you know because I was young and naive and yeah uh yeah I just had a lot to learn so did like where did you get the idea that this would be a way to connect with your students, to to live among them and to support them? Was that just inherent or did you read a book or, if, you know, uh, I just feel like a, a lot of 23 year olds who are graduating from college aren't thinking like that. Yeah. I mean, it was probably a little both. Like I um, would hear them talk about like, well, you don't understand me, like talk about their mm-hmm. teachers, like mm-hmm. you don't live here, like you don't know. So there was a lot of resentment from the students about, you know, they get told a lot what their experience is. Like partially that's, it's like part of being a teenager. And then, but partially it's like they're poor and the school was like 85% at or below the poverty level. Right. So that means 85% of the people at the time were living on like $20,000 a year as a family. So like, 
yeah and then there's a lot of like systemic stuff that's happened in the city of tucson where the south side gets dumped with things so they have a lot of like imported people telling them how to be and how to live and it the way they talked about it was like their teachers were an extension of that Mm -hmm. Um, so you were really listening and present to that conversation and yeah i think trying to give them space to like share their own stories and talk about you know and partially they're teenagers so they're gonna complain so sure (laughs) you know we were all there guys Uh, (laughs) but like also hearing the truth in that you know it's Uh not like just dismissing everything they say because they're griping because they maybe don't like that that teacher makes them work a little harder right or that that teacher blah 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 but trying to like listen to maybe the truth buried within there or that's just part of it um but then i think also in addition i my last semester took class u of a's college of education had department called um lrc language reading and culture at the time um so the departments have shifted a little bit since then but the lrc department i took a class on i think race and ethnicity in education i forget the actual title but um at the time my teacher was getting his phd or getting like working through his phd and so we read a lot of research about sense of place and um yeah just like race and culture and education and how that impacted the students. And so I think that was really a huge piece of me rethinking what kind of teacher I want to be and how do I enter Mm -hmm. in with these kids. And, um, and then Brendan O'Connor is his name. He's a professor at ASU now in their border studies department. So Mm -hmm. he, um, then did his PhD dissertation in conjunction with my class. So, um, he was in my classroom filming three times a week and um we were having interviews like this a lot just um his his focus is linguistics but um so some of it was like that was getting fueled yeah and fed into um that's really cool yeah it, was happening. and the and the program I was a part of the noise scholars like I would go to conferences and um they would send research so and did you become access did you join that program at what point in, in college did you... I think did you, I was a junior. Okay. Because so it came then, with a scholarship, so... Okay, and then there were, like, responsibilities and things that you were expected yeah. to learn. Yeah. And to be able to receive it. Yeah, because it's... I think it's a grant program through the National Science Foundation. Oh, wow. So, and, like, you know, maybe listeners don't understand that what Lane's talking about is really true and really sad about inner city schools or schools that are in communities that don't have funding and, and, um, is that kids don't get the same experiences that wealthier schools, um, can offer in terms of the materials that you need to have to be able to do the experiments or to be able to visit these places. It's, it's, it's not equal. Yeah. I mean, because if you think in a in a different kind of district, maybe, like, the teachers working, like, maybe they had a spouse that, like, and that's how a lot of teachers survived, is they had a, a spouse who had a high income. Right. So they could work at my school because they had a spouse making twice as much as us or more. Mm-hmm. Um, so they could pay for their supplies and their salary that they got from teaching was extra, basically, income. Right. Or... Um, yeah, it just kind of depended on the dynamic, but in a lot of ways, yeah, I mean, and then 
as time went on, like the strikes started happening. So where it was like revealing like why people were leaving the teaching profession and a huge part of that was pay. But schools also get paid per student. And in Arizona, we were the 49th at the time, like lowest paid. So the amount of money the school got for a student um, was the second to another state like that a different school in another state would get. So basically all the money that we need for textbooks or like my textbooks were college textbooks from 2001. Like I was still in high school when my textbooks were written. So the, like the dissection, like cause teaching oceanography, we dissected animals. The animals were five years old, just sitting in a bucket in formaldehyde. Like I couldn't get new animals. So we're like breaking old scalpels, which is dangerous, you know, wow, yeah. like trying to dissect these starfish that had like, just were like decaying and but yet disgusting and like wow you know trying to teach that way and like get the students to learn something and be excited but overlooks like you know it so it impacts every inch oh my gosh of their education you mm-hmm. know so to say it's equitable and it's not about the money no it's not but like it makes a big difference yeah so and and the the I mean as far as the kind of staff you can get like it just impacts everything so yeah absolutely it's it's a really sad broken part of our yes of our, there's a lot to that and now you know and having kids in a wealthy school district now um, my three kids I you know I'm reaping the benefits of things like inclusion for kids with disabilities yeah but I'm also widely aware of the inequality and how much more my kids have and I can understand why yeah. parents would move to other other schools or sure. or drive across town for those opportunities and and it's um yeah it's a, it's just it's such a delicate messy yeah thing yeah because even like that's a really beautiful like opportunity that you provide for your kids and have learned and grown into as you've had Bentley and your kids and been exposed to that and and usually my students like I would have a lot of students with IEPs but I would have a classroom of about 38 and 15 of those would have IEPs. That's insane. So it's physically impossible like to serve them the way they a are legally <laughs> deserving to. Right. And b that like morally that we should be like serving yeah. them to. And the schools were just strapped like they couldn't afford an aid, you know. So I would have 75 students a year with IEPs. Like, and there's no way I could go to all their, like, case meetings. No. That's, So it's just, it's, like, some of the sad, like, things that I really wrestled with, you know? Yeah. But. So let's transition to talking more about um, the relationships that you were able to form while you were working there. Can you talk some about that? Like, either you can either speak specifically or you can speak generally, whatever you Mm. think is the most honoring. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I invested a lot in trying to, well, and I remember feeling really in high school that, you know, going through my own angsty period <laughs> that like, oh, I wish I had people to listen to me and, and there are ways I did, you know, it's not like I didn't. Um, I'm sure there are a lot of adults who would be like, I was listening <laughs> to you, it was so hard. Um, but yeah, so I think I wanted to practice being present with them and like like showing them the face of God in a way that was loving as an adult in their life to care for them and um and some of the teachers at our school you know at every school did that really well and some of the teachers didn't and so but there was a lot of turnover at our school and 
they had their own administrative struggles to say the least. So, um, I think I was kind of on my own in a way. So what kind of culture I wanted to build and how to like run and do things was really left up to me as far as referrals and giving them detention and enforcing my own grading policies. So all of that was just really in house in a lot of ways. There were some big structures, but things were not enforced super well. So it, it came down to me. So I think some of that was like, how do I practice like entering in with the kids as somebody who like is willing to stand with them and love them despite their choices or stupid things they did or if they weren't doing well in my class or like to to tell them like you're valuable like mm-hmm. this stuff is I do want to prepare you to like work or go to school or like to be a human and a citizen and survive you know like mm-hmm. But I also want to like tell you you're loved and you're valuable. Mm-hmm. I think that was the missional piece of why I wanted to teach, especially high school. Like I felt like I connected with the older kids to be able to have like not like young elementary school teachers of younger kids. Like they're doing the same thing. Maybe just not talking about it the same way, you know, because right. it's still it's more like through play. Yeah. And like like a a kid can't process like. Like, you know, having conversations. Well, I didn't do my homework because I was taking care of my parents who were hungover. And so, like, I couldn't do it. And, like, an elementary school kid is not going to say that, like, right. generally speaking. So it's not a conversation you're going to have. So. Um, Did you have conversations like that? Oh, all the time. Like, yeah, every day. So, yeah, like, I remember my first year there was a student. And there was, like, steep learning curve and things I would totally change, like. Uh, he was, he would always fall asleep in my class second hour. And I was like, what is your problem? And, and our district like pulls onto the native American reservation, um, nearby too. So he was one of my native students and I remember he fell asleep and I like dropped his textbook on his desk to wake him up. And then another student told me later, like, miss, like he has a lot going on and there's a lot of stuff happening at home and he's responsible for a lot of it. And he has a job like my students most of my I mean not most of them a lot of them worked full-time let alone part-time so like after school they would go work yeah till till one two in the morning yeah to support their families Mm -hmm. yeah wow or they'd be the sole caretaker of their siblings like so they would be late to school because they were getting their brothers and sisters to school and getting them ready because their parents are working so families were just like doing everything they can to survive and so to like recognize what challenges they had and to like really see them you know mm-hmm. um yeah so with that student who was falling asleep once you found out what his struggles were what what did you do I mean and I think it's a subtle balance especially as their teacher like how do I offer that I'm willing to talk about it but a not force them or feel like they have to mm-hmm. because I'm their teacher and sometimes they're like no no no, I don't want to go there with you which is okay mm-hmm. um but to at least be a safe person right and some of it was I mean a lot of it was me apologizing I think was a huge piece because I was young and I did come from a different entitled place and so like with him I apologized and said like I don't know if you wanted me to know this. Somebody else told me, like, but so saying I'm sorry, but like, 
that that you might not have wanted that information disclosed but and apologizing for like going about it in an aggressive way an indirect way rather than like talking to him mm-hmm. and and I probably did and was like what's up and he, you know recognizing the culture like especially with native students like my native students my experience was like they aren't they aren't going to complain about their experience mm-hmm. um so to like honor what they don't want to share and yet continue to love them and care for them and so much of it was like I didn't have control you know it was like a lot of planting seeds like I don't I don't know what happened like I had a thousand students like and I don't know what happened to them all you know and it's like I am not in charge of their stories but how do Mm. I like honor that God has placed me there in that like little piece for that maybe semester or year um but yeah I think apologizing for my own assumptions Mm -hmm. and for the ways I hurt them or maybe like you know like I like there was um one of the years I was teaching, it was, it was 2012. So the Mayan calendar mm-hmm. was a big thing, you know, in society at the time. And, but I think some for them, there was more like some of that superstitious culture in Native American culture and Mexican culture was more of a thing in their families that they would talk about and take more seriously. And I very much poo-pooed it as like superstitious nonsense. And and there are some ways where it was like teaching them science literacy that could be involved in that, but also without like, <laughs> you know, degrading their traditions and their families <laughs> that I abo- like needed to go back and apologize for. And uh, yeah, so I, it was a steep learning curve. So you've been listening to Healing the City podcast with Adrian Crawford. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook and Instagram.